could invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're in chapter 6. We've been in chapter 6 for a few Sundays now. It's a long chapter. Chapter uh, chapter has 71 verses. Lord willing, we'll get to the end of chapter 6 today. You'll remember as we look back at the beginning of the chapter, it's included a lot of things that have happened, some amazing uh, things that Jesus has done and some bold claims that Jesus has made. He did the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. Uh, he withdrew when he sensed that the people were going to try to force him to be king. Uh, he went out to his disciples walking on the water in the midst of a storm and calmed his disciples down and then engaged in this uh, dialogue with the crowd and religious authorities and disciples about how, you know, that one event in the Old Testament with the people of God and how they uh, were fed in the wilderness by the manna that came down from heaven. Jesus says, all of that was pointing to me because I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread that has come down from the Father. And you must now eat of this bread. Well, as Jesus was saying these things, a number of the people that he was interacting with began to respond to him. And that's what we see beginning in verse 41 and going down to the end of the chapter. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be present with us, to open our eyes and to open our hearts, that we might see what we need to see, that we might learn what we need to learn, that you might teach us what we need to be taught. And above all, Father, we pray you would help us to see Jesus, help us to see who he is, and help us to believe, help us to come to him and believe, and by believing, to have life in his name. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, some things in life demand a response. Some things in life demand a response. They're things that you you can't stay neutral about. You can't be indifferent about. For example, somebody asks you to marry them. It's not something that you can not respond to. I suppose you could choose not to answer, but that in itself would be an answer, wouldn't it? Or you're driving down the road and you look in your mirror and you see a police officer behind you with his lights on. It demands a response. It's not a time to be indifferent. Or you're at a picnic in the park and you hear the tornado sirens go off. It demands a response. You can't simply just sit on your blanket and ignore it. Or you go to a restaurant with a friend to have a nice lunch and as you're eating, your friend begins to choke on a piece of food. It demands an answer. It demands a response. What are you going to do? In the midst of that situation, some things in life demand a response. They necessitate that we do something or we say something. They force us to not be indifferent. They force us to respond in some way. We've been looking at John chapter 6 for a number of weeks. And what we've seen is that this chapter is full of some extraordinary actions that Jesus Christ did. This miracle of feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water and calming his disciples. We've also seen that this chapter is full of some incredibly bold claims by Jesus. As he went out to his disciples walking on the water, as they were fearful, thinking that he was a ghost, he said, Ego emi, it is I, or I am. He's told us that God has set his seal on him, that he is the better manna that has come down from heaven, that he is greater than Moses, that if we look to Jesus and believe in him, we have eternal life, that he has the power to raise people up on the last day. And here today, he tells us that if we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have life in his name. What Jesus did and the claims that Jesus made demand a response. You can't stay neutral. You can't be indifferent. You can't ignore 
He demands a response. And in these verses, verses 41 through 71 that we're looking at today, we see several different responses. We see responses from the Jewish religious uh, authorities. We see responses from a larger crowd of his disciples. And we see a response from the 12 disciples. What I want us to do today is to look at these responses. There are four of them here in these verses. So we'll look at each of the responses and then we'll finish by asking, so what? What difference does this make? So first of all, uh, the first response, you can see it in verses 41 through 51. We read at the beginning of verse 41 that the Jews grumbled against Jesus. Now, this, the context here, if you remember, down in verse 59, we're, we're told that Jesus is, is saying these things. He's teaching these things in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so when we're told here that the Jews were grumbling, he's almost certainly telling us that these are the Jewish religious authorities in the synagogue that were listening to Jesus teach these things. And they were thinking to themselves, you're claiming that you've come down from heaven, but we know your parents. Or at least they thought they did. They thought of Joseph as Jesus' biological father. But we know, as the Apostle Creed teaches us, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But they are thinking to themselves, their objection was the reason why they were grumbling. They looked at Jesus as being simply a mere man. They knew his parents. It was Joseph and Mary. They saw him only as a human being, not divine, just a man. He didn't come down from heaven. He was born in Bethlehem and he lived in Nazareth. Notice how Jesus responded to them in verses 43 and following. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on to say to them, don't grumble against me. No one can come to me. Nobody can believe in me unless the father draws him and opens their heart and opens their eyes to believe. And he, he quotes here from Isaiah 54, that, that sex, section from the prophet Isaiah that speaks of the coming suffering servant that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. And he goes to that section of Isaiah in Isaiah 54 and he reminds them, you need to be taught by God. God has sent me here. I have seen the Father. I know the Father. Believe in me because I am the ultimate bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. But they eventually died. That bread that came down from heaven, it gave them sustenance for a day. But it couldn't give them eternal life. But I am the bread, the ultimate bread that comes down from heaven. And if you eat of this bread, if you believe in me, you get life eternal. I'm not just a man. I am the God man. I am the one who came down from heaven to give my flesh for the life of the world. This is the first response that we see here to the claims and to the miracles of Jesus. They they see him as just a man. He's not divine, he's he's not God, not capable of giving eternal life. And I wonder is that your response? Jesus is just a good teacher. He he's a moral example. He shows us how to be a good person in this life. But if 
If that's your response to Jesus, then you today are confronted with even more truth than these religious authorities had in the first century. You have the entirety of the Bible. You have all the claims of Jesus. You have all of the miracles that Jesus that were recorded in the Bible. You have all the eyewitnesses that bear testimony that Jesus is who he says he was. You have all the evidence at your disposal. And it must lead to one conclusion. That Jesus is not just merely a man. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate. He is the Messiah. We see a second response here. We see that in verses 52 and following. After hearing Jesus say that he is the ultimate bread from heaven, that he's the living bread, and that this bread that he gives for the life of the world, that's his flesh. After Jesus says that, the Jews start grumbling and disputing and arguing among themselves. You see it in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Here's the second response to Jesus. These Jewish authorities, they were thinking still only about the earthly, the, the, the physical world. How could they eat Jesus's flesh? They weren't understanding that what Jesus was speaking to them about was not a physical worldly thing. It was about a, about a spiritual issue. Jesus wasn't talking about his literal flesh. He was talking about his death on the cross that he would give his flesh, that he would give his blood by dying on the cross to deal with a spiritual problem that they had. How did, how did Jesus respond to them when they were grumbling about this? Well, we read that in verses 53 and following. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true wink to true drink. They were still thinking in this earthly, physical world, and they couldn't conceive of how they were going to eat Jesus' flesh. And what Jesus does in response to them is basically double down and tell them again what he had already said to them. And some people believe that what Jesus is saying here is a direct reference to the Lord's Supper. But I don't think that that is the case. I don't think that's a direct reference of what Jesus was saying here. He wouldn't institute the Lord's Supper until about a year after this. So he wasn't talking primarily about something that they would have had no knowledge of yet. What Jesus is directly referring to here is his atoning, sacrificial death on the cross. To eat the flesh of the Son of Man and to drink his blood, to feed on Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood, is to feast on the greater manna, the greater bread from heaven. It is to see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his flesh, his blood, sacrificed on the cross. And then to believe and to trust in its efficacious work. And notice Jesus says something about when we do trust in his atoning death. What does he say we get? He says we have eternal life. In the present tense, we have it now. He says he will raise us up on the last day that we will abide with Jesus and he will abide with us. And he says these wonderful words in verse, verse 57. He says that he lives because of the Father. 
And if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in his crucifixion as actually accomplishing what he said it would accomplish, then we live because of Jesus, because of his work, because of his death. The Jews here, the Jewish authorities here were were stuck thinking about this earthly physical world. But Jesus was addressing a spiritual issue, a spiritual problem. He says in verse 53 that without him, they have no life in them. No eternal life, no resurrection to glory on the last day, no living forever. I wonder, is your response to Jesus like the response of the Jewish authorities? Do you understand that your ultimate problem is not just a physical, worldly issue? Your ultimate problem is a spiritual one. Do you understand that as Jesus said in verse 53, that the only way to get eternal life in heaven, the only way to avoid eternity in hell is to feast on Christ. To come to him and to believe in him and to believe the gospel and to put your hope and trust in Jesus's sacrificial work on the cross. Our problem is a spiritual problem. But when we come to him, when we believe in him, when we believe the gospel, He tells us we will have eternal life in him and that he will abide with us forever. There's a third response to Jesus's words here. We we see that in verses 60 through 66. As this conversation is taking place in the synagogue in Capernaum, obviously the, the religious authorities were there. They were engaging with Jesus. They were responding to what he was saying and what he was doing. But we're told that there's also a larger group of of people that are there, too. And, and John refers to them as the disciples yeah, it's, it's a larger group than just the 12 disciples. And John doesn't tell us how he was defining a disciple here. It could have been that crowd of people that was following Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. It could have been a portion of that crowd. But, but he calls them disciples, quote unquote. And they had a response to Jesus as well. We see that in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, meaning all these things that they were talking about, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? We need to understand what they were saying there. What's the this that they're saying is such a hard saying? Well, it's everything that Jesus has been been talking about. It's been the point that Jesus is making is that the problem they have is spiritual. That without Jesus, without feasting on Jesus, they had no life and they would face judgment. That they were incapable of earning their own salvation through their good works and through their obedience or through their good life. They had to be drawn to Jesus by the Father. They were incapable of doing it in and of themselves. That the only way that they could get life was to come to Jesus alone and to believe in Jesus alone and to trust in Jesus alone. That's the this. And they said this is a hard saying. The word for hard there is the Greek word scleros. It's where we get our English word sclerosis. It doesn't mean hard to understand. It means hard to accept. A.W. Pink put it this way. It was not that they found the language of Christ so obscure as to be unintelligible. But what they had heard was so irreconcilable with their own views that they would not receive it. Here's another response to Jesus. 
What he says is hard to accept. Don't want to listen to him. It offends us. It goes against the view that I have of myself that I am spiritually capable of being accepted by God in and of myself. And notice how Jesus responds here to these quote-unquote disciples. We read that in verses 61 and following. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Jesus supernaturally knew that they were grumbling about what he had been saying. And so he asked them, do you take offense at this? He knew that it was offensive. What he was saying was an offense to them. The Greek word for offense there is scandalezi. It's where we get our English word scandalize or scandalous. And notice what he goes on to say in verses 62 and following. He's saying, you think that you're offended by these things. But wait until you see me ascend to heaven from where I've come. My words, he said, are spirit and life. And through my words, through me, you get life. You can't get life from manna. You can't get life from miracles. You can't get life from your obedience or living a good life or having the right family heritage. You can only get eternal life by coming to me. Coming to me in faith. And yet, he says, some of you still choose to disbelieve. And then we see their ultimate response to Jesus of being offended by the gospel in verse 66. Some of them turned back. They rejected Jesus. And they no longer followed him. I wonder if that's your response to Jesus. Are you offended by the news that you're a sinner? Incapable of earning God's acceptance. Incapable of earning eternal life. Are you offended by the truth that the only way that you can have eternal life is by believing in Jesus? Are you offended by the necessity of believing in the historical reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection? Don't be like these false disciples. Don't reject Jesus and turn away from him. In a moment, we're going to talk about the fact that we need to embrace the bad news. The bad news that we are spiritually incapable in and of ourselves. We need to embrace that bad news because it makes the good news all the greater. We should respond to Jesus rather than like these false disciples. We should respond to Jesus like we see in the fourth and final response. The response of the twelve disciples. You can see that in verses 67 and following. As these disciples watched, the 12 disciples watched these other quote unquote disciples get offended by what Jesus is saying and then leave and reject Jesus and no longer follow. Jesus turns to the 12. He, he turns to these, these men that he has specially and intentionally chosen to be his closest disciples. And he asked them, do you want to go away with them as well? And notice who piped up the first. Just like he did so often, Peter pipes up. He responded to Jesus on behalf of the rest of the disciples, the twelve. We see that in verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
This is the good response. This is the right response. This is the needed response. To whom shall we go? He wasn't saying that there were no other options available. There were plenty of false religions and false beliefs and false gods. Idols all over the place. Peter wasn't saying there weren't any other options to consider. What Peter was saying is he was recognizing and confessing that all of those other things would lead them away from God and lead them away from the truth and lead them away from eternal life. This is an admission of helplessness. This is a, an admission of the need for the gospel. The need for God's grace to be given as a gift through Jesus Christ. Peter goes on and says, Jesus, you're the one that has the words of eternal life. We, we've believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the one who said you are who you are. This is an admission that Jesus is, they knew that Jesus was the only one that could help them. Jesus was the only one who could save them, the only one who could redeem them. Only Jesus has the words that bring life and life everlasting. So here's the fourth and final response. The Lord, we look at the Lord and said, to whom else? To whom else shall we go? There is nowhere else to go. You are our only hope in life and death. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? What are we supposed to do with all of this? I have five answers to those questions as we finish up. The first answer to so what is we need to embrace the bad news because it makes the good news all the greater. Jesus was telling these people bad news, bad news about themselves, and it was bad. They aren't righteous in themselves. They can't qualify themselves for heaven through their good works or through their family heritage. In fact, it was worse than that because they are sinners. They are disqualified from going to heaven because of their sin. He was talking to them about their spiritual depravity and he was telling them that it touches every aspect of their lives. In themselves, they have no life. There is nothing that they can do within their own power to get eternal life. Only the Father can draw you to Jesus. Change your heart and open your eyes to believe. It was bad news that he was telling them. And that's bad news for us as well. Those very same truths are true for us as well. But I would suggest to you that we need to embrace that bad news. Because the bad news makes the good news even greater for us. The good news is that there is salvation. There is eternal life. There is a heavenly inheritance. And we get it simply by believing in Jesus. It is by God's grace that we have been saved. It is a gift of God. God himself is the one who draws us to Jesus. Who changes our hearts. Who opens our eyes to believe we get eternal life just by coming to Jesus and believing in him by faith. And even that faith, Paul said in Ephesians 2, is a gift from God. That's good news. That is great news. Because it's not based on anything in us. It's based on Jesus and his work. And as we start to get that into our hearts and our souls and meditate on the reality that it is not because of us, it is because of Jesus, it leads us to our second, so what? And that is that we have an assurance of our salvation that is secure. If our standing with God 
If our eternal destiny is based on us, our obedience, our faithfulness, our good works, our living a good life, then we would be doomed to live a life of constantly worrying. Have I done enough? Am I going to fall out of favor with the Lord because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness? We would never know whether we're actually going to make it or not to the end. We would never know, never have a sense of assurance if Jesus is going to cast us out because of our failures. But to the contrary, what did Jesus say earlier in the chapter in verses 37 and 39? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Those who have been given to Jesus by the Father will come to Jesus, and all those who come to Jesus he will never cast out. The will of the Father who sent Jesus to the earth is that Jesus would lose none that are given to him and that he would raise us up on the last day. Do you know this assurance? Do you know this secure assurance? Your standing with the Lord, your certainty of going to heaven, your eternal inheritance is all anchored in Jesus. There is a real sense in which there is nothing that you can do or say to make the Lord love you more than He does at this very moment in Christ Jesus. Why? Because His love, His perfect love, His complete love, is a love that has been for you since before the foundation of the world, and it is anchored in the finished and completed work of Jesus on the cross. And in those moments, brothers and sisters in Christ, in those moments and in those seasons when we are tempted to doubt, when we are tempted to believe that we are going to be cast off by Jesus, we must come back to what Jesus says. We must come back to the Word of God and let the Word of God change what is in our minds and in our hearts. Because it's true. It's true and always is true. The third so what is that Christianity... Is personal. What Jesus says here about himself and the relationship between he and his people, it's very personal. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and feasting on Jesus and, and communing with Jesus. Those are, those are personal, even intimate ideas. The, the Christian faith is, is not meant to be just a dry, detached, disconnected understanding and belief in the facts of the gospel. Certainly, the Christian faith is about knowing and understanding and believing the facts of the gospel, the facts of Scripture. But it's more than that. It's about a personal living relationship with our Savior. I wonder, is that how you would describe your faith? Now, certainly, just like our human relationships, we're going to have times when we feel more connected or less connected to other people. And it's true in our relationship with Jesus as well. There are going to be times when we feel more connected to Him, more close to Him, and less connected and less close to Him. And that's true because uh, we are imperfect, inconsistent sinners. 
But we should always be pursuing an active and living personal relationship with Jesus. How do you do that? Well, the first thing is simply to ask for it. To ask the Lord to make your relationship with Him to be personal, to be living, to be active. Spend time in prayer. Use the Word of God to pray your thoughts and to pray your feelings to the Lord. Being honest and open. Read the Word of God to get to know Jesus better. Who He is. All that He's accomplished. And also to better understand how He wants you to live your life. Christianity is meant to be a personal relationship with Jesus. Fourthly, the fourth answer to so what? We must let the offense of the cross be offensive. The cross, what it means and what it points to, is an offense. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. The way that these false disciples responded to Jesus here in this passage, that's the way that the unbelieving world responds. God said it would be that way. And so we need to be careful about not watering down the message of the gospel for any reason. Not to get more people to come in our doors. Not to say what people like to hear or want to hear so that they will like us. Not even to eliminate the possibility of persecution. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, the bad news that leads to the good news, it's offensive to those who are perishing. We must not water down the gospel in order to, to lessen the offense to others. But that doesn't mean that we should be offensive in how we speak with people or how we treat people. The message of the cross, the message of the crucifixion is offensive to those who are perishing. But we shouldn't be offensive when we talk about the cross and talk about the crucifixion and live it out in our lives. We need to speak to others and to live out the truth with grace and with love and kindness and respect and generosity and maintaining the dignity of all those with whom we speak. Let the offense of the cross be what is offensive to those who are perishing. Fifthly, and lastly, the answer to so what? As a response to what Jesus is saying here, we need to be people of great humility and great hope. I want you to notice something that I didn't point out to you earlier when we were looking at these verses. Do you notice how Jesus responded to Peter? After Peter said what he did in verses 68 and 69. Right, Peter makes this incredible confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And how did Jesus respond? Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? That seems like a little bit of an odd uh, response in the midst of this incredible confession that, that Peter's making. Why did Jesus respond that way? 
Jesus must have understood that somewhere in the nooks and the crannies of Peter's mind, and maybe even in some of the other disciples, there were some seeds of pride. Certainly this was a, a genuine confession. They were truly clinging to Jesus. But Jesus discerns the heart. And he discerned that there was just a little bit of air in their, in their comment as they respond, Jesus, we are not like those other disciples. We're better than they are. We will never leave you. And of course, we see the irony that it's Peter that's saying these things because we know that later in the story, Peter will disown Jesus three times. And so Jesus discerning that little seed of, uh, of arrogance, that little seed of, of pride, gently but firmly reminds them, hey, don't forget, I'm the one that chose you. I'm the one that called you by name to be my disciple. I'm the one that drew you to myself. But for my grace, you would be following those other disciples away as well. It's a good reminder for us too. We need to be humble people as we live out our lives of faith. We should never look at another sinner and think, I could never be like that person. I could never do what they do. We should never look at an unbeliever and then look down on them with our thoughts or our words or our actions. We should never think that we are better than others because we've got the right theology. True followers of Jesus should be the most humble people on the planet. Does your life show that kind of humility? But it's not just what Jesus says here is not just something that should fill us with humility. It should also fill us with hope. Who is it that Jesus said draws people to Jesus? Whose power is at work bringing people out of darkness and into light? Jesus said it's the work of the Father. That God himself is at work drawing people to himself. It is the power of God that opens people's eyes and enables them to believe. The other part of 1 Corinthians 1 that I didn't read earlier. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, at this very moment... Believe in our heart of hearts that Vladimir Putin could become a Christian. A Bible-believing, gospel-believing profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ such that his life would be turned. How many of us really believe that that's possible? The truth is, it's no less possible for that to happen than any one of us to become a Christian. Why? Why? Because it's God who does it. God is the one who's at work. It is the power of God that changes the heart. It is God himself through the unstoppable, irresistible power of the Holy Spirit that opens eyes and gives them faith and gives them eternal life. And because it's God who does it, because it is the power of God that changes it, it should give us incredible hope. There should not be any people in your life family, friends, co-workers that you look at and say they are beyond hope of the gospel. They could never become a Christian. We should never lose hope 
for a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. We should never lose hope for a wayward child or coworker or friend. As long as they are breathing air and the Lord Jesus hasn't returned, there is hope. Because no one is beyond the power of the Word of God. No one is beyond the power of God to draw them to Himself or to draw them back to Himself. So don't lose hope. Instead, pray for them and keep praying for them. Pray for the Lord to draw them to Himself and to give them the gift of faith. But never lose hope. Never give up. Pray and keep on praying for God to draw them to Himself because it is the power of God that opens the eyes to believe. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much here in this chapter, even in these verses that we're looking at today. And we have so many people in this room with so many different circumstances and situations, so many fears and doubts, so many struggles. So I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit, the one who is at work in our lives, opening our eyes to see and to receive this gift of faith, that same Holy Spirit would take your word today and to apply it into, in, into each of our lives in exactly the way that we need it. You, you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we need. You know what we need to hear, what we need to, to listen to, what we need to believe. And so we pray you would take your word and press it into our hearts and minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. Cause us to be, be, to be people who have a growing love for you. And a growing desire and empowerment of living our lives in a way that brings you glory and honor. Help us to respond to the claims of Jesus. Lord, to who else could we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We believe, and we have come to know and see it over and over again. You indeed are the Holy One of Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.